Hello, everybody, and welcome in to the newest edition of the Just In Time Sports Podcast. I am your host, Justin Jackson, and in this week's episode, we'll be talking about the NFL and what's going down there as we get closer to the draft. We'll be talking about the NBA as it is in full swing on the road to the NBA playoffs. We'll be talking about the NCAA tournaments, men and women's Final Four, and we'll have our best for last. Now, remember, you can find the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And don't forget to follow the Twitter page at JTime Sports. I repeat, at JTime Sports for all of your breaking news, coverage, things of that nature. For when stuff is happening, you will find out first there in perfect honesty. Now, I hope you guys sit back and get ready to learn something. Alrighty, and welcome into the show. This is an absolutely loaded show. I am very excited for this one. Like I said, I think last week, we're in the golden age of that sports period, you know, where there's multiple sports happening, even though we lost a couple of sports with men and women, Final Four is being concluded. We'll talk about that a little later. We, you know, now it's prime season baseball. Baseball really starting to roll up. It was opening day last weekend. Now we're starting to get some teams starting to churn their waters. I know it's still a little early for baseball, but they're starting to churn. They're starting to roll. The NFL, we are a mere three weekends from the NFL draft being in Cleveland. As some guys have already accepted their invitations, Jamar Chase, Kyle Pitts, uh, Trevor Lawrence to be at home. He's still recovering from shoulder surgery, although he is throwing because the labrum surgery was on his left shoulder, not his right shoulder. You have basketball. I mean, the NBA, we are right around the corner from the playoffs. Uh, 20-some-odd games away from playoff basketball. And, of course, the WNBA returns with all-new everything, which we'll talk about later as well. But we're going to start off in the NFL, and we're going to talk about what's going down with the National Football League. And right now, the biggest news to come out of the league so far this week has been Sam Donald has been traded from the New York Jets to the Carolina Panthers. Now, this broke a few days ago. We were one of the first ones on it at J-Town Sports. You should definitely be following that. Have your post notifications on. You'll know a lot more than your friends will know. Trust me. But Sam Donald was traded from the New York Jets to the Carolina Panthers. Now, a few weeks ago, I talked about how, personally, if I'm the Jets, I talked about it last week. If I was the Jets, I wouldn't have made the move. I was like, I would keep Donald. I would trade the number two overall pick. You've seen what the number three overall pick got. I would trade the number two overall pick and let somebody, anybody, not name the Patriots because they're in my division, but anybody else have their pick of the litter of the quarterbacks because everybody knows Trevor Lawrence is going one. So with that already being decided, you have your pick of the litter of Justin Fields, Trey Lance, Mac Jones, Kyle Trask, Kellen Mond. The rest of the crew, um, Zach Wilson out of BYU, you have your pick because you know already Trevor Lawrence is one. So you're not even evaluating Trevor Lawrence, not as you would a prospect you would pick because there's no chance you get him. And so I would have traded the number two overall pick, but being as though the GM didn't pick Sam Donald, being as though Robert Sala, the new head coach, didn't pick Sam Donald. Being as though the offensive coordinator, Matt LaFleur's brother, Mike LaFleur, didn't pick Sam Donald. 
and a lot of the people that Sam Donald entered the organization with are no longer there. There was no allegiance, rather, or alliance with Sam Donald. Um, there was no loyalty there. There was no way I picked you. You know, a lot of times coaches and GMs will go down with the ship on a I picked you. So you're going to ride with I'm going to ride with you until the wheels fall off. Well, with Sam Donald, nobody in the building had picked him. Quarterback coach, head coach, office coordinator, GM. I mean, the owner did. But I mean, nobody else that made football decisions picked Sam Donald. And so they ultimately decided to go with their guy, which now pretty much the world has confirmed is Zach Wilson out of BYU and Sam Donald's move to the Carolina Panthers. If I'm Sam Donald, I'm pretty happy that you saw the party that was thrown for him. It was loud. It was rambunctious. Not a lot of masks in the building, but hey, we'll deal with that later. And he was very excited to leave the Jets, as would I. I go from a division that is coached by Bill Belichick, the greatest defensive coach ever. Brian Flores, his top protege, it seems, because Matt Patricia failed miserably. Eric Mangini was okay, but nothing spectacular. And also the whistleblower on um, Spygate. And, I mean, his other defensive assistants haven't done great. I mean, his other coaches haven't done great. In general, so Brian Brian Flores of the Dolphins is seen to be his prized pupil. You've got, like I said, Bill Belichick, and you've got the second or third best defensive coach in Sean McDermott and the Buffalo Bills. And you go to Arthur Smith, who is an offensive coordinator, now the head coach of the Falcons. Sean Payton, who's an offensive genius, head coach of the Saints. And Brian Bruce Arians, offensive coach, head coach of the Bucks. So you go from three defensive-minded, very good defensive coaches in the AFC East six times a year to three offensive-minded head coaches in the NFC South six times a year. Now, the Bucks defense is no joke because we know that Todd Bowles has a defense flying around. The Saints defense is no joke as we know that the defensive coordinator, Dennis Allen, couldn't think of his name for a second, has the Saints defense flying around. Atlanta's defense is a joke. I don't even know who that defensive coordinator is. It probably doesn't matter. But you go at least to a situation where even though Miami didn't have a lot of talent, Brian Flores was scheming up great game plans every week to make that team competitive. When his quarterback, like Tua, was throwing 100 yards, they blew the Rams out and Tua threw for 100 and some odd yards. That's insane. That's like should be impossible in today's football. But Brian Flores is that good of a coach in Miami. So now you go to an unproven coach, Arthur Smith, Sean Payton, who doesn't know who's, who's playing at quarterback, which is probably Jameis Winston, but hey, for the sake of argument, doesn't know who he's playing at quarterback, and Bruce Arians, well, they won a Super Bowl, and every team has a great, every division has a great team, besides the NFC East. If I'm Sam Donald, I get Matt Rule, who's aggressive, fits my play style. I get Joe Brady, who saw what he did for Joe Burrow at LSU. Hell, he had Teddy Bridgewater looking good. Teddy Bridgewater's no slouch, but he had Teddy Bridgewater. Sort of like when Alex Smith had that run that Patrick Mahomes kind of kept Mahomes on the bench for that year. And we was like, who is this new Alex Smith gunning the ball down the field? Teddy, Teddy Bridgewater didn't gun the ball down the field, but he looked a little bit more aggressive than usual. I assume that was Joe Brady's influence. And so you have those two situations. You've got Robbie Anderson back if you're Donald. 
who you worked with in New York, who the receiver with the most yards, a little over a thousand, and the most touchdowns, about I think six or eight, to a single receiver in your career is Robbie Anderson. You've got DJ Moore, who is a top six or seven receiver that does not get the credit he deserves. You have a couple of decent tight ends. Your offensive line is a left tackle away. Oh, look, sitting at pick eight because you didn't have to give up your first rounder in either draft this year or next. Sitting at pick eight is probably going to be Rashawn Slater, Christian Darasaw, or Panay Sol. Left tackle solved. And you have an offensive system that is going to pretty much guarantee you as long as you have the talent I believe you have and the Panthers believe you have 27 points a game, 24 points a game, and that'll get you 9-7 and seven or New World 9-8, and eight, maybe even 10-7, and seven, possibly a playoff bid. They can be vying for second in the division. I think Tampa's going to run away and hide with the NFC South. I'm talking 17 games, 14-3. and three. If I'm if I'm thinking of Tampa, but if you're looking at, you know, the Panthers, they could easily be an 11 win team, 11 and six, get second place in the division and end up in the playoffs. So Sam Donald should be incredibly excited, as should the Panthers organization. Um, As you would guess, they gave Teddy Bridgewater permission to seek a trade. I don't think it's going to happen because unless you're a situation where hey, Teddy Bridgewater is going to start for you. He's due $17 million on the cap, plus he has another year on the back of the contract, plus he starts getting like weird guarantee locks in it on that third year. So if you're really going to trade for Teddy Bridgewater, you're saying that okay, he's our guy this year because we can't get a quarterback. And that quarterback class next year, which is widely reported as a weak class, is truly going to be that weak. And we'll just say, screw it. We'll ride out with Teddy Bridgewater for another couple of years. I wouldn't make that move. I think his best bet in total honesty is either to stay in Carolina under a we under a reworked incentive based backup deal or to find a spot where he can compete. But no team is going to pay him 17 million dollars to do it or 21 million dollars on honesty to do it. So very, very interesting to see how the Teddy Bridgewater situation is resolved. But now let's move on to some NFL draft stuff. And I just spoke about with the trade of Sam Donald, the Jets confirmed. Okay, the first two picks quarterbacks. But the 49ers made no bones about that the third pick is going to be a quarterback. So for the first time in a very long time, I don't remember a draft like this. Um... So, and I'm pretty good at my draft history, especially in my in my lifetime, where quarterbacks went one, two, three. Maybe this is the draft they go one, two, three, four. We'll talk about the four spot, which is Atlanta, in a minute. But if you are the San Francisco 49ers, you have the third pick. Good news, you know who the second pick is. The first pick is Trevor Lawrence. The second pick is Zach Wilson. It's been Zach Wilson for the last month. The second pick is Zach Wilson. You you know, okay, I have Trey Lance, Justin Fields, Mac Jones as the other first-round graded quarterbacks to choose from. This is where the future of my franchise will be. Justin Fields, Ohio State, Trey Lance, North Dakota State, Mac Jones, Alabama. That will be my three options. And they felt very comfortable coming to three because there's reports now that the Jets have been called very little about number two which means that the league perceives there is no way 
anybody's getting the two because they have their man made up and so they are not going to move and so the three spot became the movable spot which was miami by way of houston and of course you know the trade that happened the two trades that happened actually um involving that pick and so because you slide up to three you say hey we got our we, we got our guy in mind we want that guy well the guy seems to be mac jones and at first and i'll be perfectly honest with you up until about five minutes ago i was i was prepared to come on here and go why in the world would the 49ers draft mac jones he's the least talented of the group he has the lowest ceiling of the group he has you know the ability here sure he can win now he's a He's a little bit further along in his progression as a quarterback than a Lance or Fields. But if you're going to keep Garoppolo anyway, then you got one year to develop those guys. And I, I, I had a whole rant pretty much ready to go. And then an epiphany hit me all about five minutes ago. Mac Jones is Jimmy Garoppolo. I mean, I, I mean, I mean, it, it, it's not an insult to either one. I mean, they're literally like he's literally Jimmy Garoppolo. What is the complaints about Jimmy Garoppolo? His ceiling ain't that high. Even at his best of best. He's had the best of best in Kyle Shanahan. Kyle Shanahan took the ball out of his hands in playoff games and ran and he threw the ball eight times in playoff wins. Why? His ceiling's not that high. And you want to do your absolute best to keep Mac Jones, not Mac Jones, sorry, Jimmy Garoppolo from screwing up your game plan. That's your, that's your whole goal if you're Kyle Shanahan. He's very, he has a ceiling on his athleticism. Now, Jimmy G's marginally athletic, but he's not going to burn somebody for a touchdown as we've seen Sam Donald do with some other guys, Patrick Mahomes, even guys you would consider all that athletic. Sam Donald has ran for 45-yard touchdowns. Ask Denver. Patrick Mahomes had that great run against Tennessee. Like, these guys can move. Uh, even Tom Brady has skirted out a couple of times. It wasn't very fast, but he's, you know, slipped out. Jimmy G's more athletic than Tom Brady, but still. Every complaint we have about Jimmy Garoppolo, we have about Mac Jones, or at least we used to have. I don't know what happened, but we used to have about Mac Jones, except one. Mac Jones has no injury history. I mean, they even have questionable off-the-field decisions. I saw a picture floating around on Twitter that Mac Jones has a couple of DUIs in his past. Well, as we know, Jimmy G had the um, adult film star incident at the Avra that no one in the in the in the franchise loved. Something he could have pulled in New England. Either the papers write it or they don't. He's the backup quarterback. Bill probably wouldn't have cared. Face of the franchise, adult film star, the Avra, and eh, not a good look. They have one difference because they're pretty much the same quarterback. They have one difference. Health. Mac Jones, as far as I know, has no injury history. Or if he does, it was prior to him starting. Kyle Shanahan has been in San Francisco four years, I believe. The one year he had a healthy Jimmy Garoppolo. He was a throw being about five yards too far from Jimmy Garoppolo. From beating Patrick Mahomes in the Super Bowl. All the other years he's there, Garoppolo's been hurt. He had the ankle sprains last year. 
he had the freak torn ACL the first year he showed up. I forgot it was the other year. I think it was a shoulder situation. If he can just get Mac Jones to be a healthy Jimmy Garoppolo, Kyle Shanahan figures, I can get to the Super Bowl. Done it already. So why not pick Mac Jones? He's the most NFL ready. He looks the most like Garoppolo. He plays the most like Garoppolo. And with Jimmy G in the building for another year, I can have Jimmy G basically teach Mac Jones how to play quarterback in my system. It's perfect. Plus, Kyle Shanahan has to be thinking, Jimmy G's not going to make it anyway. So if he makes it six, seven games, gets hurt, when now Max has six, seven games to watch how to run the system, nothing changes. Just slide Mac in and keep it rolling. Like I said, up until about now, 10 minutes ago, I had no idea. I didn't even think of this. It's perfect. I mean, everybody in the national media, I'm seeing questions like, oh my God, I can't believe we traded up for Mac Jones. I mean, in theory, he's not Mac Jones or Kyle Shanahan. He's Jimmy Garoppolo with no injury history, which the last time that happened, Super Bowl appearance. Kyle Shanahan's getting real close to, I won't say being Matt Nagy, a guy we think is smart, or this guy I think is smart, but never got the quarterback right. If he misses on this quarterback, which I believe anybody that goes there will be fine, but if he misses and his quarterback is not very good, he loses a little bit of that cachet that he got from the Super Bowl run with Matt Ryan and the last name being Mike's son. So we will definitely keep our eye on that situation, but Matt Jones actually is this pick that you would think he would make now. Thinking, looking at it, he's healthy Jimmy G. But let's shift to a little draft movement. So Atlanta, like I spoke about a few minutes ago, has the pick, the moving pick now. So I talked about this early in the draft process where I was like, man, Atlanta's got the pick that can move. And I said it a few months ago, man, Atlanta's going to be the moving pick. Nobody was talking about it. Nobody was even looking at it. Because I was looking at, man, okay, you know Jacksonville's going to go Trevor Lawrence. We're pretty sure the Jets are either going to pick somebody for Sam Donald or trade Sam Donald and ride and pick a quarterback. And at that time, we saw Miami had a choice. You had to get either the top receiver for Tua, you couldn't chance it, or the top tackle for Tua, you couldn't chance it, or a quarterback, and you move off Tua. And I said, the pick that can move is the Falcons. Now, selfishly, I was thinking about the Patriots. I'm a Patriots fan, so I was thinking about New England. I'm like, okay, you know, number one is Jacksonville. They're not moving. Two and three are AFC East. They're not about to hand Belichick a franchise quarterback. So I said the pick the Patriots can come to is four. But then the more I thought about it in a pragmatic sense, I saw one through three having a very good chance of being quarterbacks or picking for their current quarterback to try and save that quarterback. And so the pick that can move is four. Why? This is before the rework deal and everything. Atlanta had Matt Ryan. Hello, Atlanta. Matt Ryan, that's your problem. It's like that's like Vegas always seem to be wants to move off Derek Carr. Hey, Derek Carr is not your problem. Atlanta, Matt Ryan is not your problem. He has been trying to carry whatever the hell you call that defense. And he didn't do a great job it last year, but he did a pretty decent job of the year before that. Julio was hurt all year. The defense was whatever it was under Dan Quinn. Matt Ryan is not your issue. I promise. So I'm thinking, okay, 
at four, you don't need anything available at four. Could you get a franchise tackle? Sure. But you can get that at nine, ten. Because that was, like I said, there's three of them Rashawn Slater, Panesor, and Christian Derisoff from Virginia Tech. There's three of them. So you really don't have to pick one at four. You know, if you, if you want to go offense. If you're thinking in your head, if you're Atlanta, hey, we could really fix that defense. Guess what? Nobody in the draft on defense is worth the number four pick. Queedy Payne? Nope. Gregory Rochelle? Nope. Patrick Sertan? Ain't Caleb Farley? JC Horn? Nope, nope, and nope. So guess what? Trade to nine. There's plenty of options for Atlanta. You can do and get whatever you need at 9, 10, 12, whatever you need is going to be there. The only thing that you say if you just fall in love with Kyle Pitts, he's not going to be there at 9. But everybody else, Micah Parsons will be there more than likely. If you can't get Micah Parsons, then just get a defensive end. Your defense is terrible. Just get anything that works on the field. And so I've always said Atlanta was the movable pick. And ding, 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 guess what's starting to happen as of a couple of days ago. Big news outlets, big reporter outlets are saying that Atlanta's now the pick and they're taking phone calls on the number four pick. When it is leaked that a team is taking phone calls on something, that's because they've been doing it for probably a few weeks and now they want to turn up the pressure or they could have a few bidders and they want people to realize, you know, the bidders that, hey, you're not the only ones trying to buy this item. You might want to up your price a little bit. We've seen what Miami got for number three. They got so much for number three to go to 12. They were able to convince Philly to go from six to 12 and use the assets they got from from trading three and not give up any new assets. (laughs) So that is how much Miami got for three. And now we're pretty sure we know one, two, three in terms of the draft. So whoever gets to four is going to have to love Justin Fields or Trey Lance. Because you're guaranteed to get one of them. So if you love both, you come to four. Because you know one is Lawrence. You know two is Wilson. You think three is Mac Jones. But if three is not Mac Jones and three turns out to be Justin Fields and you love Trey Lance, you just get Trey Lance. And so Atlanta seems to be the pick that is going to move. We called it a couple months ago. I don't know, but people took this long to figure that out. I guess they, you know, finally admitted to doing it, I guess. I don't know. But... Atlanta's looking to pick to move. Now, in a mock draft done by, oh, I can't think of it right now, but a couple of mock drafts, I'm starting to see the Patriots are the team that flies up to four to get a quarterback. Now, in in these mock drafts, it's always Justin Fields because, again, the world thinks one, two, three is decided. In this scenario, the Patriots get, like I said, Justin Fields. The only problem is what would Atlanta take to go from four to 15? Because if we get to 15, you're probably picking the third corner. You probably have your choice of the fourth offensive lineman, maybe the third if you get lucky, but the fourth offensive lineman, you have your choice of the fourth or fifth receiver when you have an interest in a receiver, just in case. Now, defensive lineman, you'll have your pick of litter because maybe Queedy Payne is gone, but Gregory Rocho will still be there. Christian Barmore from Bama will still be there. 
um, linebackers. He probably won't have a shot at Michael Parsons, but the rest of the linebacker group will still be there. So in theory, you could come to four to fifteen. It just take a lot of additional picks, and I'm not sure the Patriots are in the additional pick game. Belichick has been a hoarder of picks, usually to pick them. But this would be the year that after Robert Kraft says we're not that good at drafting, after Belichick spends a ton of money in free agency, this would be the year that you take those cash of picks over the next two, three years, and you spread out some long-term picks. You know, you obviously swap ones this year, you give your one next year, you give your two the year after that, you may even give you a three next year and a four this year. So Atlanta gets six picks spread over two, three years. They have a new young GM, a new young coach. And so they may take that deal to go from four to 15. If I'm in Atlanta, however, I call Denver at nine. Good at nine, I'm guaranteed one of the tackles, Slater or Sewell. I have a really good shot still at Michael Parsons because if he doesn't go seven, he'll be there at nine. I will have my pick of the litter at corner. Barring the Carolina Panthers who need a corner takes Patrick Sertain, for instance. I have my pick of litter of Caleb Farley or JC Horn. Nine is actually the most advantageous spot. And for Denver, I'm picking up the phone and calling Atlanta and offering whatever the freak they want, sans Von Miller, pretty much, because or oh, in the other book in Bradley Chubb. Because you need a quarterback. Your defense is good. Not great. It's not Chicago good, but it's it's good. It's it's in a 17 game season. It's that's, that's a 10 win defense with a competent quarterback. Uh, your division's pretty loaded uh, with the Chargers and the Raiders and the Chiefs. Okay, that's an eight win defense. And you just need a competent quarterback. If you put get in, if you call up, you trade up, and you go, you land at four. You got Justin Fields, Trey Lance on the board. You decide, you know, John Elway, you love those big, strong quarterbacks. We're going to go with Trey Lance. And he wins you a couple games he probably shouldn't. You might be a 10-win team. I don't see that happening, but he might be a 10-win team. But you know Drew Locke can't do it. And like I said, we pretty much know that the next QB class ain't great. So what are we going to do at quarterback if you're Denver? I would call Atlanta, make that move. I'd make it yesterday. I'd have made it two days ago. I don't know what Denver's waiting on, but hey, we may end up with that situation anyway. So just quickly, there are some legacies in this draft class. We've talked about two of them extensively. Uh, Patrick Sertain, obviously, is Patrick Sertain's senior son. Uh, both both are cornerbacks, so that's pretty cool. And then J.C. Horn is the son of Saints wide receiver and Saints legend Joe Horn. So that is pretty cool as well. But up next, we're going to shift to the NBA and talk about what's going down in the association. Alrighty guys and welcome back into the show and now we're going to shift to the NBA and talk about what's going down in the association and as always we start off with a peek at the standings that beautiful 1 through 10 because of the play-in tournament which I think should be a permanent thing because adding a lot of intrigue to well seeds 11 and 12 which never happens 
but out east we have brooklyn philly milwaukee charlotte atlanta miami boston the knicks indiana and chicago and out west we have utah phoenix the clippers denver lakers portland dallas memphis san antonio golden state now going back to my point about i believe the playing tournament should be a kept thing okay the nfl has done a really really good job especially recently of what they call in the business stealing real estate so the calendar is 12 months 365 days a year certain sports own certain parts of the year because nothing else is on so the nfl owns september so college football owns labor day weekend early september and then the bowl season like that first weekend or so in january even though the nfl regular season is ending football college football takes the cake takes the precedent in the country because it's championship weekend it's playoff weekend for college football nfl playoffs hadn't quite started yet but college football doesn't have a big footprint the nfl dominates january because of the playoffs early february because of the super bowl and now they're taking real estate march because of free agency and april because of the draft and they're stealing pieces of land there's nothing on in, in the dead of summer guess what happens nba free agency is king during the dead of summer and major league baseball because there's nothing on so sports have done a really good job of trying to stake out the calendar there's a little overlap but when one close to the end of the season that one dominates so college football and the nfl take precedent over the nba until those sports stop and the nba roars usually roars to life right after christmas baseball gets started opening day first couple weeks is exciting then you hit the dog days of summer where nothing's on but baseball and then baseball is really finishing up when football starts to roll back so again there's everybody has a piece of calendar and then the nba gets in when they get in but the NFL had done a really good job of stealing time on the calendar. Like I said, March used to be baseball, 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 or basketball, basketball, basketball. Now that's all pre-draft talk, NFL free agency. April used to be, oh, baseball's back. Now it's, oh, the draft's in a couple of weeks. You know, and, and what we talk about as a group, as a country, as a sport monolith, is changing it's it's morphing away from okay football is from august to february that's it and then we know about football then we got the draft in april and then that's it no football is being talked about now year round basketball needs to continue to carve out real estate but not real estate in terms of the calendar which they could use helping that too hence the summer league in the middle of the summer has taken a lot of thunder from WNBA. We'll again we'll talk about WNBA later. Basketball needs to make every team relevant. The NBA needs to make every team relevant all year. So the NBA has a tanking problem because teams on the bottom four of each conference. No, I'm not even gonna make the playoffs. I have no chance of making the playoffs. Why try? We'll just lose a lot and try and get a really high draft pick. That middle team, those middle tier teams, so teams that are first to finish 8 to 12, they're thinking we're going to go for the playoffs because we can get in with a couple of breaks. But if it's 15 games left and we're the 11th seed, screw it. Pack it in. Try and see if we can move our draft pick around. 
help our odds out. In the NFL, you play every game like it's your last game, regardless. Now, we've seen teams that are two and four, two and thirteen in week sixteen or seventeen get rolled by a really good team, but it happens in the second half. They fight in the first half, and then after halftime, they look up, they're down thirteen, pack it in, go home, don't get hurt, get to the offseason. The NBA with the playing tournament has made officially seeds one through 12 matter on both sides because you can get in the playing tournament to make the playoffs by being the 10 seed. So the old used to be, man, how many games back from eighth are we? If you look at the Pelicans, they are five games back from eighth right now. They would be completely irrelevant in the old way of doing things about the playing tournament. They wouldn't matter. It would be, man, okay, how high would the Pelicans draft pick get? I'm looking at the standings right now. They are, yeah, five games back from Memphis, eight, being eight, and Memphis is on a roll right now and looking to climb up. It would be, man, five games back with 21 or so games left. Yeah, pretty much pack it in. The Pelicans are making the playoffs. However, they're the 11th seed, and they currently are two games back from Golden State, and they play Golden State at least two times. I believe it's I believe it's three. But I know they play them at least two times in the season. They beat them both. They make up that two-game stretch, and they'll own the tiebreaker, and they'll become the 10th seed, which last two years ago, 10th seed. Who cares about being a 10th seed? You're still two spots out of the playoffs. This year, you're in the play-in tournament to try and get in the playoffs and become as high as the 8th seed. Also, look at Sacramento. They're two and a half back from Golden State, only a half game back from the Pelicans, and they already own the Pelicans on the tiebreaker. So now they're intrigued. Oklahoma City is trying to tank, but they're only three and a half. Okay, they're okay, they're four and a half back, so even they're too far out for that. But Sacramento is the 12th seed in the West, and they have a very legitimate shot, even though they've lost five games in a row, they have a very legitimate shot of catching Golden State to be the 10th seed to have a shot at the playing tournament. Let's look out east. So, as we stated before, it's the playing tournament. Now, Toronto is in a bad spot. Toronto is three games back from Chicago, who, with the addition of Vucevic, have created a big gap between Chicago and Toronto being the 10 11 seeds. However, Cleveland's only a half game back from them, and Washington is only a half game back from Cleveland. So Washington is the 13th seed, and they are four games back from Chicago. And Chicago is not a great basketball team. So they have a very good chance of catching Chicago to get in. The 13th seed matters in the East. The 12th seed matters in the West. That's 25 out of 30 teams that have a shot of being in the playoffs. That is the ideal goal for any league to make as many teams matter for as long as possible. And with the play-in tournament, that is a that goal is being accomplished because you have 25 teams out of 30, which is 80% of your league, still attempting to get in the playoffs instead of one-third of your league deciding by now, all right, we're not going to catch eighth. Let's just shut it down and try and get a good high draft pick. So for the NBA, this is going to fix your tanking problem because guys are going to go for it because they know in out West, Golden State's shaky. Golden State is very shaky. And if you're in New Orleans, you have to match records with them the rest of the way, beat them both times you play them, and you're in the plan. 
for Sacramento, you're thinking, I just got to match New Orleans because I already got the tiebreak over them. So I just got to match New Orleans and I'm in the plan. Out East, like I said, Washington can go on a streak. They still have Russell Westbrook and Bradley Bill. You know, Toronto, that veteran leadership, Pascal Siakam, Kyle Lowry, and that crew, um, Gary Trent Jr., they may figure it out. They may go on a little run. And Chicago just put Vucevic and Levine together. And although I love that combination, they just got put together. So we don't know how long that's sustainable. An injury to Chicago derails the whole season. Chicago, I don't know, turning back into Chicago could derail their whole season as they was just the 11th seed a few games ago. And so that is a very good thing the NBA is doing, and I believe they should make the playing tournament a permanent thing because, like I said, you have 80% of your league still, 83% of your league, sorry, still trying to compete to make the playoffs instead of 33% of your league deciding, all right, I'm out, let's tank. So I think this is a great solution for the NBA. Now, just some news to talk about and discuss. Kevin Durant returned Wednesday against the Pelicans. Uh, as a Pelican fan, I was none too pleased with it. As a basketball fan, I was excited to see him back on the court in a different iteration of the Brooklyn Nets because when it's James Harden and Kyrie Irving, James Harden is the point guard scorer. He's still like he's in Houston. Kyrie Irving puts the ball in the hole. The bigs are active, whatever. When Kevin Durant's on the floor, you saw LaMarcus Aldridge get post-ups. Blake Griffin get some more driving pass lobs it was the offense flowed a little differently without having james harden's ability to one-on-one iso and really break down a defense the offense operated a little differently but speaking on kevin durant he didn't miss 17 points on five shots he made all his field goal attempts five of five he made it the two threes he shot up two for two and he made all of his free throws and he was able to get 17 points on officially five shot attempts which is technically impossible if you just do raw shot attempts and points. That is three point something points per shot, which there's no shot in the NBA worth more than three points. So I'd be very interested to see his um, advanced analytics on his day. But he had an amazing debut. It didn't look like he missed a beat. He flowed well. He had 17 points, seven rebounds, five assists. Uh, and seven turnovers in 19 minutes. He was flowing well. He looked like Kevin Durant. I mean, his mom was in the crowd cheering. Kyrie's family was there. When he did his dunk, he pointed to them. They were back. Um, So that was cool to see as a basketball fan, Kevin Durant back on the floor. Because, again, there were worries. Um, I was hypothesizing there were micro tears in his uh, hamstring. Same thing to me. I'm hypothesizing that Anthony Davis has a similar situation going on in his calf Achilles area. And that is a concern if you are a Laker fan uh, for Anthony Davis going through possibly micro tears. But we'll talk about them in a few minutes because right now we're going to talk about Zion Williamson and his amazing streak that unfortunately came to an end versus those Brooklyn Nets in the very game Kevin Durant returned. Uh, For those of you who do not know, or did not know rather, Zion Williamson was on a streak of 20 points per game, scoring at least 20 points a game on 65% or better, or sorry, 50% or better shooting, my apologies. So the streak was 25 games. Uh, The record was 25 games. The record was set by Shaq in 2001 when he did it. Um, I'm trying to figure out how was Shaq stopped because that was Shaq's most dominant season. 
Um, that's when you put it all together. That's when the Lakers were 16-1 and in the playoffs. Allen Iverson took game one of the NBA Finals. And that's the only reason why the Lakers didn't go fo 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 and sweep their way through the NBA Finals. So, or through the NBA Playoffs, rather. And so, like I said, Shaq has the record or had the record. No, still has the record. But now Zion Williamson has tied it as he did not have a good shooting night. He was under 50% shooting, and he only scored, I believe, 16 points or something like that, 18 points. It was his first bad game in, like, two months. Um, And so that was a ridiculous streak. I'm sure he'll go on another lengthy one. I'm not sure if you have to do it in the same season um, or if it's one of those, you know, he does the last – 15 games this year or something like that and they do the first six or seven next year and he has it um so i'm not sure what the how they broke down the record numbers but it was still an impressive streak because what made shaq's impressive was shaq was seven feet tall seven one i think shaq said he's seven two but seven one seven two 300 some odd pounds at that point most dominant player ever Wildly regarded as just this absolute monster. I mean, he called himself the MDE, the most dominant ever, um, most dominant center ever, etc. And Superman. And Zion Williamson is six foot six. Now he is two hundred eighty four pounds, but he's six foot six, and his and their games are similar in terms of Shaq wasn't doing anything outside the paint. Something like 75 or 80 percent of Zion Williamson's shot attempts start with at least one of his feet in the paint, and now he's popping a three every few games. And it's the form's looking good. I don't know why he doesn't shoot it more, must not trust it for multiple shots a game. But he'll shoot it wide open, he'll pop the three. It's looking good. I mean, he's made his last three or four, he's shot, and so that is an element of his game that's coming together. His free throw. Percentage is coming up. He's in. He's creeped above seventy percent, I believe. And so, if he shoots above seventy, let's say seventy percent from from the free throw line, he'll score twenty points, pretty much off layups and free throws. He'll get to twenty. And so, unfortunately, his streak ended. Uh, that'd have been pretty cool to see a uh, one of those streaks that one of those good crazy NBA streaks fall. But unfortunately, it was unable to fall. Now, I'm going to make an hypothesis. I'm not a doctor. I am just a guy who knows a lot about sports injury history. Um, Pretty much, I can tell you what's in the knee because I've seen so many knee injuries. I can pretty much map you out a knee with the ligaments and the bone and where everything, everything goes. I can pretty much figure it out because of so many knee injuries. I'm curious. I look up stuff and stuff like that. I want to know. Okay. And I'm also a junior reporter at the conference. I'm a junior sleuth. About a week ago, maybe a little week ago, LeBron posted a picture of him and his daughter Zuri in the gym. On a side note, Zuri is incredibly buff for her age. I, I, it's got to be in the gene pool. But he posted a picture of him and Zuri in the gym working out to the Bride of Chucky, which I thought was weird. But in the photo, LeBron had a boot. Now, this is a pretty large boot. Now, he's a large man, but a pretty large boot. I'm like, man, LeBron's a ways away because that boot looks pretty big. Again, I'm no medical expert. I haven't had any ankle injuries or anything like that, so I don't know the protocol for a high ankle sprain. But I'm like, that boot looks pretty large. A few days prior to that, we had heard 
Anthony Davis has ramped up his on-court activity. Not ready for games yet, but he was given clearance to ramp up his on-court activity. Okay. So I heard that. I'm thinking, okay, AD's back in two weeks. Two and a half, maybe. Then, a couple games ago, we saw LeBron A attend a game, which he had not done for a while. He did he'll do home games if he did home games and once in a while in the boot, but he did he when he had the boot on his foot, he wasn't coming. He went to a home game and noticeably the boot was not on his foot. He didn't move a whole lot. Um pretty much once he sat down, he was there. Uh he didn't pop up at during time lots and stuff, but when he was moving, there was no boot. Last game, the game they just played against Miami, he's walking around now, popping up during timeouts, and again, no boot. Who's right next to him popping up? Well, if it is Anthony Davis, with no limp. Now, Andre Drummond made his re-debut last night. Anthony Davis should be about a week away, maybe 10 days. I would give LeBron another two, three weeks, and they'll both be back. In my humble opinion, on the court, May 1st. By the 1st of May, I predict LeBron James and Anthony Davis will be back in Lakers uniforms, playing for the Lakers, who are currently the fifth seed, and are in no danger, as of right now, of being even in a playing time. So... If you're a Lakers fan, you tell your team, hold the fort for two weeks to get Anthony Davis, for three to four to get LeBron James, and then we can make a run to the title. Home field, home court advantage, rather, is very not, it's, like, it's not bubble irrelevant because it's not the same court, but you might have, I think, the, I think the most packed arena has half capacity. So the home court advantage really isn't there. And so, if you are the Lakers, you are sitting in a pretty prime spot. You just got to hold the fort until those guys come back in two to four weeks. You'll have both of them back. And so, that's what I took from the game last night. Just LeBron walking around. Again, amateur sleuth. Slightly above amateur zoologist in terms of knowing the human body. That was very encouraging to me as as a Laker liker. I won't go into a Laker lover, not a Laker fan. However, the guy who likes LeBron and he likes to see the best of the NBA on the court, that was a very encouraging sign. The MVP race is an interesting one because we don't know who has the lead. Okay, Embiid's back. LeBron's out. LeBron's out the race. He's going to miss too many games. It's towards the end of the year, he's out the race. The Bucks are the third seed. It's possible you can give it to them, Giannis again, but I doubt it. I think Joel Embiid still gets the MVP. Because the one advantage Harden had was KD was out, and Harden was in, and he was going crazy. Well, Harden's out, and KD's back in, and, uh, and the team don't look changed. So, valuable? Yeah. LeBron, this would be a shoe-in for LeBron because all the competition would have got hurt, except he's out. And he would have been out a month. So, he's at the race. Giannis, his team is not special this year by any means. And you want to make Giannis the first three-time MVP since Larry Bird back to back to back? Yeah, not happening. He's out. So, I'm looking at a Joel Embiid who's back to dominating. 
He only missed a few weeks. He probably is going to win the MVP and win it. He's going to set history as the guy that missed the most time and still win it since Bill Walton, I believe. Missed a bunch of time and still won. But that is something that I think the MVP rate is going to be one of those non-traditional winners where there's no clear cut like, oh, he should be MVP. I mean, Chris Paul might get a lot of votes now because he's playing every night. The Suns are second place. His counting numbers aren't great. But in terms of value, I can think of a more valuable person in the NBA right now than Chris Paul. I mean, LeBron James, obviously. But LeBron James aside to their organizations than Chris Paul. So I would definitely be looking for that and watching the MVP race closely. Luka may pull Dallas. If he gets Dallas to the sixth or the fifth seed, Luka may end up winning it after all. Because remember, Russell Westbrook with the Triple W year won it as a sixth seed. So if Luka can pull Dallas to the fifth or the sixth seed, Luka Doncic may win it after all. So that would be huge because it will make my prediction of Luka's going to win MVP look really, really good. So that is something I'm low-key rooting for. But hey, I'm definitely watching the MVP race. But up next, we're going to talk about the NCAA tournament, men's and women. Alrighty, guys, and we are back. And now we're going to talk about the final four men's and women. And we're going to start off with the women. So, first of all, I want to congratulate the Stanford Cardinal on winning the NCAA title. Uh, this is huge for them. I believe it's their first one in school history. Um, and they had some pretty good players roll through there. You know, we had the Agumike sisters, just to name a couple of the ones that came through. They've had some other really, really good stars at Stanford over their illustrious history as well. And they have won their first title. So kudos to the Stanford Cardinal. What was incredibly encouraging was I have been a big proponent of women's basketball in terms of pushing it to the forefront of the national media coverage. I always say you give the women a platform and you put them on television, people will watch. Now, will the women's sports ever do the number of the men's sports? Probably not. I'm not saying that. But people like TV, we've heard the easy excuse. Oh, people aren't that interested in girls basketball. Put it on TV and you will see. Every sport in the country lost viewership over during the pandemic except for two. The women's Final Four and the WNBA regular season and playoffs all had rating spikes compared to their their former year. The women's ratings jumped a good bit, actually. They averaged 2.2 million viewers for the Final Four, and 4.08 million were drawn in for Stanford and Arizona. Now, this is huge. This is a big jump. And like I said, they're one of the few sports. Every other championship game collegially, the ratings were down. Every other championship game around in professional sports, the championship was down. I remember the NBA ratings were like the topic of shows and the topic of newspaper articles every day about how low the ratings are on the bubble. The Super Bowl was a ratings dip. The playoffs were a ratings dip for the most part. 
it is insane how every other sport went down except the WNBA had a rating spike and the women's final four had a rating spike as well so that is my point you have to support these women and their sports because guess what these ladies can play and i'll talk about this a little bit more in best for last uh sneak peek of that so it is huge for the women's game that the final four was so successful and that the that the last game was so crazy the fact that Ari mcdonald who played herself into the top five of the wnba draft she was shooting over a double team and almost banked in a shot to win the championship absolutely insane I mean, which was followed up the next day by Gonzaga UCLA, which we'll talk about in a second, or followed up Gonzaga UCLA, my apologies, we'll talk about in a second. I mean, insane. Paige Beckers is absurd. She was one of, she's one of those just absolute, she's a machine. I mean, Stephen A called her the Steph Curry of the women's game, period. So we're talking WNBA, we're talking college we're talking high school you know like i said uconn's adding az az fud next year with steph curry people call her steph curry clay thompson of the women's game so they're gonna have the splash sisters <laughs> for uconn uh if Paige beckers is the steph curry and az fud is the clay thompson you got the splash sisters at uconn for jana oriyama so i would preseason way 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 too early prediction for that i would have uconn win the championship Led by Paige and AZ. Um, but kudos to the women's tournament. We know we they started off rough with the weight room situation. I'm not sure how the hell that happened. Um, according to the NCAA, the equipment arrived late. Okay, whatever. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't the men's space. It wasn't. But according to the NCAA, the equipment arrived late. Um, it got held up somewhere in transit. I don't know. Uh, conveniently, this equipment and this... Uh, information may was made available after the women posted pictures and instagrams and stuff like that of their situation i mean three yoga mats and an academy style weight set is not enough for these elite athletes to work out to stretch to stay limber and at first it was a space issue and then they saw the empty space and then it became oh the equipment was arriving late yeah, the equipment was never ordered. You panicked and ordered this weight equipment to have for the women's tournament. Their food situation improved as well. Now, they didn't get what the men got. Uh, that's probably due to sponsorship and stuff like that. But they were able that the food situation did improve inside the bubble. So kudos to the NCAA for mostly fixing their egregious error that they committed to begin with. And the women are standing up for themselves. They put on a great performance. You had controversy with Baylor and UConn. You had amazing performances with Ari McDonald. You had a, a superstar in the making in Paige Beckers. You know, you had African-American history uh, with Don Staley and the coach of Arizona, whose name escapes me, and I apologize ahead of time, her name escapes me, being the first two black women um, coaches in the Final Four. Or the first time two of them have been in the Final Four, rather. Um, you had absolutely, you had a, like I said, you had Gina Oriyama showing that he's not dead yet with Paige. And we like I said, AZ Fudd coming next year. You had Dee Richards and everything she's going through to get back on the court and her story. So it was spectacular women's tournament. Uh, they did a hell of a job. And I cannot wait to see some of these young ladies in the WNBA in a few months. 
and the rest of them to return back to college basketball to give us another great season. Now, shifting to the men's tournament. Remember how I said about the women's? That's a rarity. They went up. The men's tournament took a pretty decent dip. Uh, the final four ratings for and the championship game ratings were down about 8 to 12%, depending on what numbers you look at. About 8 to 12%, they were down. And it was not because of the quality of the game. Obviously, the game in the final four was Gonzaga-UCLA. So I went in, you know, last week, hey, where Justin was wrong, I was wrong here. I went in saying Baylor-Houston's going to be a slugfest. Gonzaga's going to blow out UCLA. We're going to get Baylor-UCLA. I'm going to go with Gonzaga. None of that was right. Um, (laughs) None of it was right. I ended up getting the winners right in regards to the Final Four games. I got the championship game wrong, and I wanted to pick Baylor so bad. Like, everything in me was saying pick Baylor. Um, But... In the spirit of full transparency, I had picked Gonzaga in a bracket of mine. And so I was really picking more with my predetermined bracket than what my eyes have been showing me. And I've never been more wrong. Again, I got the teams right. I just didn't get how they got there right. For instance, I said Baylor would pick apart Houston. And I said Baylor would, you know, I said Baylor would beat Houston. It'd be pretty close, you know. Because Baylor gets steal, they get to handle a bunch of deflections. Houston likes to dribble drive. That'll be tough for Houston, but I'm saying, you know, the games will be close. And Baylor absolutely destroyed Houston's soul. I mean, it was over in about five minutes. And then I was like, man, I did this whole breakdown about UCLA uh, and Gonzaga. I'm like, man, even if you hold Gonzaga to 75 points, UCLA don't have enough scoring and enough points to get there. And nobody going to make it to 77. UCLA can't score that much. They barely got 51 against Michigan. And this whole breakdown. Yeah. And that was probably the greatest NCAA tournament game in a very long time. But, I mean, we're not even going to talk about Houston Baylor. It was a massacre. We're going to talk about that Jalen Suggs incident with the UCLA Bruins. So, nobody gave UCLA a shot. Pretty much, I was in the majority. And I don't like being in the majority. I was in the majority of Baylor Houston's going to be a good game. Gonzaga and UCLA be over by halftime. Everybody could turn in early, get an early night's sleep. We know what the result of the game is. Well, Baylor Houston was over at about five minutes. And UCLA Gonzaga was an absolute slugfest. And it was one of those games where you're watching the first half. And you know when you watch a game, you're like, man, the good team, like those Warriors teams. They were going out 8 to 10 points in the second quarter. And you're like, yeah. But when the Blitzkrieg happens and they score and go on a 20 to 2 run, they're never going to look back and you're never going to be this close. And the whole first half, I kept waiting on the Blitz from Gonzaga. And I'm like, where's the big 13 to 2 run? I mean, in college basketball, 13 to 2 is like 22 to 2 in the NBA because of the points. It's just the points score in the game. I'm like, where's the big 13 to 2, 15 to 2 run where UCLA doesn't score, doesn't make a field goal for three and a half minutes? Gonzaga scores 13, 14 unanswered. And then, you know, the game is over. It goes from a one or two point game to a 12, 13 point game. And spirit breaks. Game's over. And it never happened. And it gets to a point with about four minutes left. You're thinking, UCLA might actually win this. Like, 
they have a very good chance of winning this game. And madness at the end of regulation goes into overtime. And overtime, like, okay, here, okay, Gonzaga about to come out, win overtime, first two minutes, first two and a half minutes, 10 to 2, ball game. And it never happened. UCLA kept fighting, kept scrapping. Like I said, they were down their most talented player in Deshaun Nix. He went to the G League. They were down their best big and their best scoring big due to injury. And I'm like, holy crap, they may win this. So, as you know, the last sequence was insane. Uh, Gonzaga's up to UCLA. Um, Johnny Juzang, I couldn't think of his name for a second. My apologies. Johnny Juzang goes up for the layup, or floater actually, misses it, gets his own rebound, and lays it back in. I'm thinking with four seconds left, we're going to double OT. And if you're a Gonzaga, you're probably thinking in your head, we can't get rid of them. And for UCLA, you're probably thinking, if we get to double OT, we have to win this. I mean, there's just it's one of those like, we have to win, we have to win this game. And so Jalen Sells is running. He gets the amount. He's running. He's, but he catches it going left, which I thought, okay. Not, I mean, he catches it going right. My apologies. Going from, you know, he's going right. And I'm thinking, okay, interesting. Because he gets it right in front of the baseline. But you can tell if you look back on it, this was, they do this. This is, this is something that they practice. Because as soon as the shot went in, nobody ran to the ball. So everybody kind of ran a little bit away and Jalen Suggs did sprint it past the inbounder to scoop it. But like I said, he was going right. So he pounds, he's fine up the court. Nobody cuts him off except there's one defender standing a little bit past half court who stands in front of him and ultimately makes him shoot. And he pulls up and banks in the three. It was the most insane ending to a game because when Juzang floats it, you can see it's short. So it's me like, oh, it's short. Well, Juzan, because he floated it and could see it was short, immediately pivots when he hits the ground, grabs the ball and puts it in. So I'm thinking, holy crap. And then Suggs hits that crazy shot. It's insane. So like I said, I've never been more wrong about a prediction. I, I mean, I've said teams are going to win that loss, and I felt more right than I did after that Final Four because how I had the games going was completely flipped. And then you get to the championship game, and Baylor ended it in about, I don't know, six minutes. So, uh, if they knocked out Houston in the first round, they knocked out Gonzaga with one minute into the second round. It was an absolute mismatch physically. The Gonzaga Bulldogs looked like a team from a smaller conference that had never played athleticism like that in Baylor. And Mark Few said it. They... They, they didn't see that all year. So they were supposed to play Baylor earlier in the year and it got canceled due to COVID. Well, Gonzaga ran through Iowa, ran through Kansas, ran through all these other bigger schools because Gonzaga knows in order to have a top seed, they could play a bunch of cupcakes and they play the cupcake conference schedule and they won't be prepared for the tournament and they'll probably end up with a two seed because they're in a little conference. They'll be treated like a mid-major. But because it's Gonzaga now and they go out and challenge themselves in the conference, they'll play in whatever preseason tournament you want to play in. They'll play whoever you want in the preseason in the early non-conference schedule because they need to build up their resume for a one seed and their team in general. But they were supposed to play Baylor. When they walked on the court together, you immediately went, oh my God, Baylor doesn't look like Gonzaga doesn't look like Baylor. Gonzaga 
looked, it was just completely different. Baylor looked like they went and took a couple of football players, put them in basketball uniforms, and said, go play. And they wore them out on the boards. Uh, Baylor had, I believe, 16 offensive rebounds. Gonzaga had 22 total rebounds. Uh, they, the guards were all in Jalen Suggs all night, especially uh, Davion Mitchell, who's headed to the NBA draft along with Suggs, presumably. Uh, Drew Timmy, who had been a man someone's boy in terms of his footwork and his skill, was flat out beasted and feasting on. I mean, they threw him around the block. He couldn't get going all game. He was in foul trouble a lot. So it, it was absolutely insane the difference in physical ability between Baylor and Gonzaga. Like I said, the game was over in about six minutes. And Baylor ultimately wins their first national championship um, after their coach has been there 18 seasons. After saving the program, after I believe a, one player was accused of murdering another player, there was illicit payments going to players. It was a lot. Baylor's basketball program was a complete mess and in shambles. And the coach uh, saved it. And so props to him and congratulations to Baylor University or University of Baylor, Baylor University, one of the two. For winning their first national championship. Um, the big question that came out of it was, did that change your opinion of Jalen Suggs? My answer is no. I never considered Jalen Suggs to be the best Jalen in the draft. Um, I never considered him to be the best player in the draft. I believe Kay Cunningham is runaway number one pick. Doesn't matter who's picking one. Jalen Suggs is the number one pick. So if the Pelicans end up with the number one pick, you draft Jalen Suggs. He's immediately your starting two guard. If you are the Minnesota Timberwolves, you get the number pick again. You draft, not Jalen Suggs, K. Cunningham. You draft K. Cunningham, you're, he's, the, he's your two guard. If you're a Minnesota Timberwolves, you have put him at two guard. Put Anthony Edwards at three. You figure it out. But K. Cunningham is the number one draft pick. Number two, in terms of talent, I believe it's Evan Mobley. You don't get seven-foot guys who can move like that, can shoot. Um, too often, he's not he's not the ball handler of a Kevin Durant, etc. But he can move, he can handle the basketball. He knows what he's doing with the ball in his hands. So I believe Evan Mobley would be a number two pick. I believe that Jalen Green or Jonathan Kaminga could be three. So three, four, Jalen Green, Jonathan Kaminga, both win G League. So a lot of the casual fans don't recognize their face because they weren't on the college basketball stage. But I believe Jalen Suggs or Jonathan Kaminga should be your third and fourth picks. And then I would say Jalen Suggs could enter that discussion in fifth. I don't think he's that much better than Deshaun Nix, who also went to the Jiggy League. A lot of people don't know. I don't think he's that much better than Deshaun Nix. So that'll be very interesting to see just how it falls in the draft with Jalen Suggs. Um, I've heard Josh Hart comparisons. I believe he's a little better than Josh Hart, but that's a good comparison. Um, Josh Hart is a hell of a comparison. He just, I think he's more of Josh Hart 2.0, which Josh Hart was the last pick in the first round. And we're talking about Jalen Suggs being a top three pick. So that's something to watch out for. His individual team workouts will be huge for his draft stock. But up next, we're going to talk about best for last, which is going to be a talk about the WNBA, which we've been teasing multiple times all episode. But we'll be talking about the WNBA and what's going down there. Alrighty, 
So let's get into best for last. I honestly have been wanting to talk about this pretty much all episode. It's been in my brain pretty much all episode as I've been talking with you guys and just doing this show about how excited I am for the WNBA season. I think this is the most excited I've ever been about a season coming around the corner in a very long time. So the I'm excited every year for college football over the moon. I believe we have 148 days. I'm over the moon excited for college football, but I always am. I'm so excited for the NFL season because I can't wait to see Sam Darn in Carolina, Kyler Murray with his new weapons, um, you know, the Trevor Lawrence, Zach Wilson, etc. Showing up in the NFL. I can't wait for that. I'm a, I'm a huge football guy. I am so over the moon, over the universe, excited for the WNBA season. And this is the 25th anniversary. As we know, that I'm talking about the rating spike last season. The, NBA, the WNBA is expecting another rating spike. They just redid the CBA. So now that you've got happy players where you got full maternity leave, you've got average salary being in the six figures for the first time in the league's history you've got full paid maternity leave for the first time in league history you have tons of child care services now done by the teams for the first time in league history you have five hundred thousand dollar contracts now for the first time in league history there's so many huge advancements that's going on you've got brands now fully embracing the w for instance, Taya Cooper is one of the faces of the Jordan brand right now. Um, something that probably would not have happened five years ago. I mean, Maya Moore was a Jordan brand athlete, and no one knew. Like, it was one of those things, like, if you were a WNBA fan, you knew Maya was a Jordan brand athlete. If you were a shoe geek, you may have known. But, for instance, we all know Kevin Durant's Nike, LeBron James' Nike, Steph Curry's Under Armour, Dame Lillard's Adidas, etc. We know James Harden's Adidas. We know a face, and we probably know your shoe or your shoe brand. Giannis is Nike. Joel Embiid. Okay, I can't think of Joel Embiid, but I believe he's Under Armour or Adidas. He's, he, he's Under Armour, I think. Steph Ivins is the face of the Under Armour brand. We know your face and we know your shoe. And so now you've got people lining up to sign WNBA athletes to shoe deals. Um, usually have to come with some kind of off-the-court presence or off-the-court ability, um, something that the NBA really doesn't have to have because it's just their face recognition but it is happening it is an encouraging sign but i am so excited about the 25th year of the WNBA. and you look at it they introduce an all new line of jerseys so every team will have three jerseys which is something that we see in the nba you know in the nba they have like six or seven jerseys i remember the lebron james era heat I mean, they had like the white hots, the black and blacks, the reds. They had traditional white, traditional black. They had throwbacks. All kinds of stuff was happening with the heat back then because Nike was just pumping as many ideas as they could into the NBA when they when they smell money. They pump as many ideas as they can. And so the WNBA has and Nike have worked together to create three everybody will have three uniforms they will have the explorer as they're called there's explorer which would be a team colored theme jersey so if you're a sparks it's purple and you know if your phoenix is orange and purple probably you know if um you're minnesota look for green or something like that you know a team colored inspired jersey then there's the heroin 
uh, jersey, which would be the home whites. Um, it's the white jersey everybody would have, the heroines. And then there is the rebel jersey, which would be a female empowerment storytelling jersey of some sort. So Atlanta has uh, their nod to voting. The New York Liberty has equality across their chest. It means something. Every jersey means something to either the organization, players in it, women in general. And that is huge. The WNBA is also bringing numbers back to the front of the jerseys instead of the large um, jersey sponsor advertisement patches. Um, we They didn't have numbers on the jerseys. It was a little odd. You would kind of have to just know how a player looks at it. Just saying like, oh, I know for a fact if I see number 30 for the Sparks, that's a Gumake. That's Neka Gumake, you know. If I see number three for the Chicago Sky now, that's Candace Parker. You know, Candace Parker's one of the faces you knew because of TNT, stuff like that. But, like, Neka Gumake doesn't do anything outside the WNBA for the most part. Her sister Chenae's in the media. But you would see 30, and you'd be like, man, I wonder who that is. Or you wouldn't even see. You'd just see a Gumake if you could read the jersey when she's happened to run by. So that is huge. And Nike's already done things like uh, better fitting uniforms, more size options, more sculpting. You know, for the women on the court, you know, it looks like the NBA it seems like every jersey fits exactly how it's supposed to fit. And I think the WNBA is finally taking those stances now with Nike, like make sure these jerseys are fitting how they are supposed to fit on our women and how we envisioned them to fit when we did that. So that is absolutely huge. I'm loving the new jerseys. I've already picked out six or seven. I'm very interested in getting. And so that is huge for the WNBA in terms of these jerseys look amazing. Um, I mean, spectacular. It's not the traditional jerseys of, you know, remember the old two-tone jerseys? Everybody in WNBA had those. Uh, then there was, everybody had solid jerseys. Now we're getting all kind of crazy designs. Everybody has a black jersey. This thing is insane in terms of the jersey rollout that Nike did with the WNBA. I am incredibly impressed and glad that this is happening for a league that deserves it. Um, and then if you shift to the marketing aspect, so of course, anytime something happens positive with a fledgling league, with a league that's trying to grow, there's controversy. And so Draymond Green made a statement about how his post-game presser, which has become Draymond Green's soapbox, he made a st- statement or a series of statements regarding the WNBA saying that Women's sports in general, saying how they want equal pay and they want et cetera, et cetera, but they sound like they're just complaining because the only thing they're saying is we want equal pay. We want this. We want that with no plan of action. Now, when I heard it, I immediately went, Ugh, that ain't great because Draymond Green has been a proponent of women's sports. Um, he's been he has several friends like Chanel Gumake calls him Day Day. And how, you know, they um, hang out and do all these celebrity stuff. And he's a big helper. So immediately I was like, ooh, that ain't great. And then Megan Rapino jumped in. There's U.S. Women's, team, US Women's National Soccer Team leader. And then Chanel Gumake put out all the stuff she's been doing as president of the Players Association. And so it wasn't great because they are fixing their problems. It's not as simple. Like Draymond said, it's not as simple as the revenue isn't there create the revenue which is why nike launching this new jersey line was huge you have hopefully you can get fans in stands this year that'll be huge um their marketing i mean i've they've had their hashtag running with the 25th anniversary 
for months now. So that is also huge as well. And just the excitement of the level of players. I cannot wait for this WNBA season. But that is all we have for today. I hope you guys enjoyed. Remember, follow the Twitter page at Sports for all of your sports needs and breaking news. And this is your host, Justin Jackson, signing out.